Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. And welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clue, editor-in-chief of Eater. My name is Daniel Janine. I'm a producer at Eater. Amanda, what in the world of food are we talking about this week? Daniel, this week on the show, we are talking to one of our editors out of San Francisco, Luke Sai, about what's happening with Japantown and how it has been impacted by the pandemic. We are talking to one of our L.A. editors, Mona Holmes, about what's happening to downtown L.A. And then you and I are going to shoot the shit a little bit and catch up on what's happening, including what's happening in the world related to elections as pertains to food. Cookie polls, Prop 22... We can get into what people ordered on election night. Ooh, yeah, let's just jump right in. It's been the election. It's been the election this week. You know, Election week. And tumultuous election week. We're recording this on Thursday. Uh, there's still no certainty. Um, you know, maybe by the time people are listening on Friday, things will be locked in, smooth sailing. I should hope so, Daniel. But I should. But hope listen, so. we talk food, though. You know, that's our yeah. game. Uh, one of the things that I feel like people were talking about on a lighter note around elections is uh, this idea of like cookie polls. I'd actually never heard it framed like that. But conceptually, uh, there are bakeries around the states that will offer a Trump cookie and a Biden cookie or like a red cookie and a blue cookie and then mm-hmm. monitor the results to try to gauge uh, from from their fan base who who's going to win. I mean, obviously it, it means nothing. It's always kind of interesting. Um, what, what do you think? I just want to highlight what you just said. Obviously it means nothing. <laughs> obviously it means nothing. And yet those headlines were getting a lot of traction on Tuesday, especially in our internal Slack messaging mm-hmm. group where people were just tail spinning because so many of these cookie polls were favoring Trump and I will surprise no one to hear that our our team leans leans on the progressive slash democratic side uh they lean that way yeah yeah they lean they that way toppled over one direction but they <laughs> I mean lean that po- way. even they lean that way the most professional pollsters yeah. don't get it right a lot of the time so many potential flaws with a cookie poll <laughs> like what <laughs> <laughs> like who who are you who is your base? Who's buying from mm-hmm. you? How is it representative of your area? Also, do you ask people why they're buying the cookie? Yeah. I could see people buying Trump cookies just to break them up or just to smash yeah, them. Yeah, you don't want to eat I your future president. Mo- I'm not going to eat a Biden cookie. No, no, because there's a lot I'll, of artificial I'll, shit in that cookie. I would buy 50 Trump cookies and like do funny things to them and send them to friends. You know, like that could be a scenario. So yeah. that's well, what I mean when I say- Wait for I mean, April Fool's, my girl. You know, okay. <laughs> for that, for that you, what, monster prank job. <laughs> <laughs> you brought this up the other day um, that at least they're more accurate or more reliable than the octopus picking the World Cup. 
but I don't know. Same thing, maybe. Right. Yeah. Well, it actually, they, they may be less accurate because, as you just pointed out, it's unclear what choosing one of the two cookies means. So it's it could be right. more misinformation than it is than it is useful. Although I think that Trump is such a polarizing figure that it actually surprises me a little bit. I think it's so ingrained in so many people that they wouldn't want to spend money on a Trump thing. Sure. So yeah. may, hard, but hard to know. Right. Uh, but you're and the and the fans are true fans, you know. So I feel like this president kind of messes up their polling because apparently a lot of these cookie polls have allegedly called a lot of elections. <laughs> like everybody even said that. <laughs> but I think when you're dealing with a, a figure such as this, it's kind of it's kind of tough to rely on those traditional metrics. Yeah, but to shift into something which is actually a little bit um, more reliable. In the Hamptons, there was a restaurant that had a sushi roll poll. Um, okay. The New York Post headline was, now that's some raw polling data. Cool. <laughs> uh, but again, actually, I think, you know, it, it, this is actually more inaccurate because those sushi rolls were different uh, flavors. So, like, one of them was the Trump roll was spicy tuna and smoked salmon. Uh, sourced from the same fishery that supplies the president's Mar-a-Lago restaurant, topped with orange caviar, uh, reminiscent of Trump's hair. The Biden roll uses blue crab um, and avocado and is topped with mackerel. It's uh, silver sheen evoking the pol- the, the politicians, uh, the political lion's locks. I, I, I don't... Jesus. Yeah. But you know what? With su- At least the cookies are the same flavor. So you're never no one's going to choose based on their, you know, flavor preference. This stuff is also dumb. And there was the thing in The New York Times. Well, the Hamptons aren't like in a swing state. I think you really care about the swing state bakeries and sushi bars. Oh, so you're saying if you were going to put in the work to open a bakery where you're going to gauge the political interests of your clientele based on the color of cookies, you would do it in a swing state. I'm saying if I want to rely waste your time, if I want (laughs) to rely on some food based polling, I care more about the swing state bakery polls <laughs> if that's how i'm gonna spend my time ahead of the election yeah. <laughs> did you see that article a couple weeks ago or maybe last week about uh gauging people's political affiliation based on their fridge based on oh, what's in their fridge you know i saw all of the backlash to that oh my god so where was it in the times it was in the times it was pictures of people's fridges and you had to it was a quiz you had to guess hmm who was voting for Trump and who was voting for Biden, which seems like so such a waste of time for the publication and the audience. <laughs> like the the mental exercise seems not helpful also. But then now whenever I look at my fridge, I think about what someone would choose and just it makes me just think about how my fridge is what chaotic. Was the backlash? Just that it was stupid and this is not the time to do stupid stuff like this. And you shouldn't be associating people's consumer habits to their moral values or political values. And it's um, it's leading people towards like bad generalizations. I, I agree with that. I think, though, one of the one of the problems in general is that, um, you know, we reduce everything so heavily and we're so quick to call someone in an evil trumper or whatever 
oh, and then it's like, oh, you have a diesel car? You're a Trumper. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that stuff is terrible. So I, I think that this kind of thing just reinforces that. And therefore, I totally agree. I think it's it's dumb. Having said that, um, wh- I do find the... Like, remember there was that story about the, the politician who called, um, like, called out liberals, like goat milk drinking liberals? Sure, yeah, yeah. I do find the tendency for progressive people to jump quicker on something like oat or goat milk, have, you know, uh, non-dairy coconut yogurt or whatever. Like, it's f- it's, sure. f- it's fun. I-, I wish, I guess, it wasn't in the paper of record. But like, yeah. in my spare time, when I'm off the books, I take this quiz all day, baby. You know, like, I don't know. I, I love this Well, and game. it almost seems like it's trying to teach you a lesson about how to not make assumptions. Like, you see a big side of meat, and so maybe you assume it's some red-blooded Texan. It's just like, nobody actually thinks like that. Like, we are smarter <laughs> than that. I, I don't know. It's just... Yeah, I'm not. I'm not with it. If, if they've got take to go boxes from Mar-a-Lago, don't use them. <laughs> All right. Next up on the show, we have Luke Sai, one of our editors out of San Francisco, to tell us about what is happening with Japantown and the Japan Center Mall. Luke, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. Tell us what what is happening with Japan. First, tell us what is Japantown in San Francisco. Give the context for people who don't know. Sure. Uh, Japantown is just this historic um, neighborhood in San Francisco that's um, been around for over 100 years um, and has just historically been where a lot of the Japanese um, businesses uh, in in San Francisco have been. Um, so restaurants, food businesses, um, and so forth. Um like just traditional kind of mom and pop sorts of places. Um, and in uh, the past couple of decades, all of those businesses have sort of been concentrated into um, this giant mall um, called the Japan Center. Hmm. Um that's sort of right in the heart of Japantown. So it's just, you know, I have a couple of um, young kids and it's just like one of the favorite places for (laughs) them to visit in San Francisco. You know, you can get your, um, your mochi and you can get your um, Japanese crepes and you can get like all kinds of delicious things. Um, Your conveyor belt sushi. um, And there's like a Japanese bookstore in there. It's this really sort of special, unique um, neighborhood in San Francisco. Right. And so since they're all congregated in this one mall with two landlords, it puts them in an especially vulnerable position during this pandemic in that they all are dealing with these two landlords. Can you tell us about what's exactly, happening Exactly, because there are these sort of two mega landlords in uh, for, for this mall. Um, and there's sort of dozens, you know, probably 50 or so small businesses um, that have one of these two landlords. Um, and so the mall, because many, as, as other malls um, have been around the city, has, has been closed um, for a big chunk of the pandemic. Um, you know, so a, a lot of the businesses were closed entirely um, for months, you know, um, just like a lot of other restaurants around the city. Um, and so they have these two landlords and both of the landlords are basically saying um, that they're not willing to cut any sort of deal or discount on rent um, and also on maintenance fees um, that 
are being charged um, to these businesses, um, including for the months um, when the mall itself and the businesses had to be closed entirely. Um, so I think this is just an issue that is sort of industry-wide, you know, or, or citywide, nationwide, you know, just if things continue the way they are, you could potentially have 50 small businesses, which would make up almost all of Japantown, um, having to leave and, and being displaced and, and they're essentially not being Japantown the way that we know it anymore. Can you talk about who the landlords are? Sure. I mean, one of them is the um, Kinokuniya um, bookstore or, or the sort of parent company of this pretty well-known um, Japanese bookstore. So, so they're the landlords um, for one of the um, buildings. And then the landlord for the other two buildings is basically this uh, real estate developer that's based down in um, Beverly Hills. So, you know, I think th there, there are some lawyers um, who are representing various of the tenants. Um, and one of the things that they've said is that um, one of the frustrating things is that it seems like these landlords are not really taking into consideration the historic and cultural significance of these businesses um, to Japantown and to the Japanese American community in San Francisco in being unwilling to negotiate. They're sort of not factoring the fact that these are, you know, many of these are historic, long-time staples of the community. Has the area surrounding the mall changed? Like, do you think that the landlord is interested in it totally revamping what's going on yeah, inside? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I don't want to speculate too much, but I will say right. that, the, like, among the tenants themselves that I've talked to, there is a lot of chatter that, you know, like there was at, at, at one point in its history, um, an effort to sort of uh, turn, uh, to, to, to develop the property into, you know, condos or something like that. And so there is some chatter, like maybe this is strategic and maybe they're hoping that yeah. they'll all leave and then that they'll be able turn it into right. condos or something that would be more profitable. Um, so there is that kind of talk, you know, I, I can't say whether that's true or not, um, but yeah, I mean, there is concern. But what's unique about this situation is that there is that this history that kind of connects all of these businesses that, in a sense, have been compressed into a tiny space or a smaller space, and now this is effectively turning the lights out on the whole operation. Exactly, exactly. Um, potentially, you know, and I think that's why. Then that, I think that's why when. Um, when my story ran and a couple of other reports have come out about this situation, there, there has definitely been uh, this sort of outpouring of just support and just outrage um, because mm -hmm. so many people in San Francisco have memories of um, Japantown, you know. Is there a point in which the San Francisco government would get involved like are they appealing to legislators is there a way to to do something or push something forward at the city level so there are these lawyers um uh there's both um the asian pacific islander legal outreach um they're one of the firms that are representing the tenants and then there's also another firm um that's representing them in in trying to negotiate with the landlords but they're sort of seeing that maybe 
negotiating with the landlords might end up being a dead end. So in addition to that, they're also trying to work with the city supervisors to see if there's going to be some sort of legislative solution. So one of the proposals that's being floated right now um, that could potentially be helpful is just further extending uh, the eviction, uh, the commercial eviction moratorium. So currently, um, none of these businesses can be evicted prior to November 30th, even if they, you know, don't pay rent at all. Um, but after November 30th, that is set to expire. And then so theoretically, all of them could get evicted after that point if they still haven't paid up the money that they owe. Um, so there's a push to sort of extend that into next year. Um, and also to set up some like more reasonable payment plans to allow them to pay back um, th that sort of deferred rent. So, um, but there is a hope that maybe the city can intervene. Well, Luke, thank you so much for shining a light on this story. Um, I think it's really important to keep our eye on it and see how it goes and see if they can make any progress there. Amanda, what do you, what do you think about Japantown? The story? I mean, it's just sad. It's really sad that they are all subject yeah. to the decision of this landlord or these two landlords, all these businesses in this cultural center. It sucks. I was saying, I think what makes it awesome, like what makes it originally awesome, all of these places in the same place is now, you know, they have all their eggs in one basket. It's it's it just then the basket goes down. Yeah. That's how the eggs in the basket metaphor works. But <laughs> what makes it so great is what makes them so vulnerable. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I do think there could be grounds for the city to intervene with the landlord to be like, hey, this isn't just a issue of commerce and capitalism. This is important to our city and the fabric of the city. And we need you to play ball here. Yeah. I think they'd have to give them something rather than threaten something, though. Like, what power does the city really have? Tax breaks. Because the landlord will just be like, that's Hollywood, baby. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, Daniel, I think we one bit of news that we really have to tackle this week is... Everything we touch is hard news, but go on. Is Prop 22 out of California, which was a ballot measure, uh, controversial, I believe, that was put forward by the, the delivery apps and the rideshare apps, Uber, Postmates, Lyft, Instacart, and DoorDash. Uh, there is a law that was passed called AB5 last year. It requires all companies to treat their contractors like employees if they use them the way that these companies do, which is all the time. Uh, there's a very real difference between a contractor and an employee. Uh, that would cost them so much money that they fought Which mostly it. comes down to benefits and Yeah, yeah. You do not have yeah. to pay your contractor's benefits. Um, and they sunk $205 million into this measure, making it the most expensive measure in U.S. history. Uh, they flooded the market with TV ads, with radio ads. Uh, they messaged every user they had. They got their workers to put postcards in the Instacart delivery, and it worked, and it passed. Are you upset about this passing? I don't think it's, I don't think it's great that it passed, no. What about you? I think, so you should talk, I mean, when prop, or sorry, when AB5 went through, you had to reclassify some of our employees as well, 
right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, AB5 went through and recently they um, exempted certain workers, including journalists. Like the way AB5 passed was really interesting in that some people like graphic designers were exempt, but other people were not. When really the bill was targeted towards the gig economy, meaning Uber, like this was written for Uber, Lyft, Postmates, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. it's so interesting that now it has no teeth. Like the, the kinds of workers that are included are not really the kinds of workers they were trying to protect. Well, I mean, just from talking to people that we've talked to, I think they're the idea that people appreciate the flexibility is true in some cases. So what, what is the actual proposition? Like what, the scheduling wise that you have to put in your hours ahead of time? I think if you're a full-time employee, they treat you like a full-time employee. So they would probably give you shifts. Um, I don't think the law requires that. The law is just that like, if you use this person all the time, if they're working for you 40 plus hours a week, you need to give them benefits and you need to give them overtime. Um, And the companies are suggesting that if they had to bring on full-time employees, they wouldn't be able to afford it. Therefore they would, you know, they have a million drivers now and then they could only have 200,000 drivers. Um, But to me that sounds like, Oh, well we don't have the money to compensate people fairly. Therefore we could have more people making shitty pay versus fewer people getting benefits. I mean, they made the same case in New York when they were trying to put a limit on how many drivers you could have in the city at one time. Like all these things, it's kind of complicated. I mean, you want people to be paid fairly for their work and then, but you're going to also have some people who want to maintain, who want to throw in like an hour a week or whatever. Um, Yeah, I think... And they appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, I think there are those people. Um, but I think in general, believing in workers' protections, probably where I'm going to fall on it. Um, compensating people, giving them benefits. Like right now, under the proposition, they get some sort of subsidy towards health care, which they're using as this big marketing point. But they would have gotten full benefits. So... Mm-hmm. It's interesting. They've also, they also, as you know, have threatened to pull out of California if this proposition didn't go through, uh, which I think was an empty threat. They're just sneaky. It's like these big tech companies, big money wins again. Yeah. I mean, win at all costs, right? I guess. Food will continue to be delivered in San Francisco and uh, in California. And, you know, that's my real genius fucking reaction <laughs> to this thing. <laughs> okay, Amanda, up next on the show, we have... Mona Holmes, reporter at Eater LA. Uh, Mona put out a story a few weeks ago talking about the restaurant scene in downtown LA and how it's being affected by the pandemic. Uh, Well, first of all, Mona, welcome. Welcome, Mona. Hello. Thanks for having me on. What are some of the problems that downtown LA restaurants deal with that restaurants in other neighborhoods in the city don't really have to deal with? They've got um, I'd say that one of the largest problems is that they currently lack really any solid representation because their councilman um, wound up getting removed from his position and is currently under indictment for charges of fraud wow. um, with the FBI. And this swath of that he represents a very powerful powerful position. The what he represents is this huge swath of Los Angeles, including downtown. So there's really no one to advocate for them right now because he's been so. The person who's standing in for him has been a little bit preoccupied. Um, that's one. Uh, number two, uh, one of the um, like 
like to call it innovations or just a really good uh, rule that the mayor decided to do was to increase outdoor dining through an alfresco program. Um, and it's a, it is a really good idea. I mean, this is the city where we need more outdoor seating. It's amazing that we don't. That's a whole other story right there, by the way. Um, but they just basically eliminated the permit process. All you had to do was apply for a permit, cost you nothing, and you were able to put chairs and seating either on the sidewalk or in parking lots, and which is a great idea for the rest of Los Angeles, but in downtown, it's a little bit more challenging. Um, they, there are so few restaurants that are dedicated to restaurants. In fact, I think there's probably maybe one or two. Um, and, and gathering sidewalk space is a little challenging because a lot of the times that those areas are managed by apartment buildings or business um, places where huge skyscrapers are. Um, so they don't necessarily work. And then another one that was um, a problem or issue that was reiterated by my, my uh, restaurant in Chinatown, Little Jewel of New Orleans, the owner, Marcus um, Benninger, said that, you know, the, the Alfresco program is great, but um, they do have a homeless problem that is so, so prominent in downtown. In fact, there's quite a few restaurants, including one of my favorites in the city called Woodspoon, that is a block and a half away from Skid Row, um, which has the highest concentration of uh, homeless in all of LA County. Um, you know, and it's, you know, for them to, and it's, it's, it's a really sad situation because these people are the most vulnerable. Um, but at the same time, you know, a lot are dealing with mental illness and really struggling. And so having a, a meal on a sidewalk becomes a little bit more challenging. So those are, those are just a couple of them, <laughs> a couple of the, the many problems that you see with downtown LA restaurants. And it's interesting because mm -hmm. downtown LA has kind of been in this resurgent scene, I think over the last decade and a half, like if you went downtown maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago, it wouldn't have been this vibrant. But up until this year, it has been kind of growing in popularity. You could say that again. <laughs> um, there was um, uh, a group of really wonderful restaurant owners that um, that can be traced back to 1999 when they were... Um, a bunch of them took advantage of an adaptive reuse ordinance. And so that changed um, the regulations where developers could come in and they could convert these historic, gorgeous, gorgeous abandoned buildings and commercial buildings into residential projects and businesses. And they were pretty successful at it. Um, you know, I would say that that was the beginning. Um, you know, I, I, as a lifelong, almost lifelong Angelino, I remember going into downtown for very specific purposes and getting the hell out um, because it was just not, it, it just, you know, at five o'clock when all of the office workers were there, they just left. Another thing that I'm seeing in other cities around the world, um, I've seen it in Seattle and New York and London is just this emptying out of centers where office workers congregate and is is LA that is that happening in LA or, or is the workforce so dispersed that the impact isn't as great? Yeah, we we feel it. Um, it's because uh, here's a contrast. I drove around downtown in I think January of this year. You know, I usually take um, the metro downtown because parking is just a nightmare. 
Um, but just one random day, I said, it can't be that bad. Um, and I was there sometime around like maybe 1245, one o'clock, and it took me 25 minutes to go three blocks. And I swore that I would never would again because it was just so vibrant. People going out to lunch and, and, and construction and all of these things. Um, so yeah, but then driving, uh, contrast that to driving around, you know, maybe two months ago. And, and it's just, it's just empty. It just doesn't have that same bustling, you know, movement and momentum that you, that we're used to seeing that's been taking place since around early 2000s. It's kind of a shame. I hope, I, I, I really do enjoy going, taking the metro down, walking upstairs, figuring out which direction I'm going to go. That usually means that I'm in Grand Central Market, like grabbing a coffee or something really small to eat. Um, you know, that thing has been around, Grand Central Market's been around for a hundred years. I really hope that it's not going anywhere. I don't think that it is um, because the landlord who, or the owner who um, took over two years ago um, has worked really hard to work with his tenants to make sure that they succeed and coming up with different programs, like having a, concierge that runs around to grab multiple items for you and then drops it off to a delivery driver. Um, you know, they're, they want, I mean, to me, I believe that that's what most landlords should be doing. Like instead of worrying about rent on the first of the month to figure out ways to help these restaurants do well so that, you know, it still remains somewhat of a thriving, innovative scene. Well, Mona, thank you so much for, for looking into this, for telling the story and for sharing your time with us. Oh, my pleasure. You too. Shall we move on to a quick rundown of some outdoor dining stuff? Sure. What's up? What's happening? Well, there was an interesting, there was an article I would say in, in Gothamist just, uh, saying called, I ate dinner outside on a 43 degree night. Will you initially, this seems like a this seems like a tragic thing of like a, I I was freezing eating at dinner, but I think I think that Scott Lynch here tries to give just an overview of of what it's like. the The obvious takeaway I think that that he has in talking to some people is that people are initially less interested in eating something hot because I think the fear is that the food will get cold. Um, so he went to a, uh, Bouvet and ordered a stew and then to Nami Nori and ordered sushi. People, especially in the comments were more, uh, okay with the idea of going somewhere like Nami Nori because the, it's not hot food. I just hadn't really thought about that. I don't actually huh. think it makes a difference. And, and I would actually have thought that it would go the other way. I'd rather order hot food. For sure. And it's like, it doesn't get that, it doesn't get cold that fast. I mean, well, and it's something the stew. restaurants are going to have to think about. Not a stew. Yeah. Stews never get cold. Have you ever burnt your mouth on a stew like 40 <laughs> minutes later? I mean, food will. Food, there are definitely some dishes that I don't want to eat outside, like warm dishes. Food doesn't get cold. Food gets cold. <laughs> <laughs> but stews, stews are going to be yeah. your go-to. I would not eat sushi outside in 40 degree weather. That does not sound fun to me. Doesn't, it doesn't sound super exciting, um, but Nami Nori, which is a wonderful sushi place, uh, gave out warm oven warmed rocks for people to hold on to to warm their hands um hand warmers are, are a crucial a crucial thing here and it brings me to something have you been outside and someone gives you and restaurants i've experienced are just offering a mug of hot water instead of cold water that has not happened to me what the hell yeah you're you're really 
Yeah, I'm you, missing you, it. You must be going to some Jesus. hacky joints. I am. Um, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It fills you up. It warms you from the inside out. I will say, if you're freezing sitting outside, though, and you get one, uh, that'll it'll it'll hold you over for 15, 20 minutes, but then you're going to want <laughs> another one. Cold. <laughs> Did I cold tell again. you my dim sum story on the show? No, but you texted me saying, hey, dim sum was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to dim sum and it was cold out. And mm-hmm. I went to a place where I didn't know how you this is the problem with the dining scenarios. Now, you don't always know what you're walking into. So it's this giant dim sum place. Walking out to. Walking out to. I never thought of how the kitchen is on the second floor before. But now that I'm sitting outside, the distance between the kitchen and them bringing you the food is really long. And it's one of those places where they package everything up in a to-go box and then bring it to your table and you have to unwrap it all. So it's not even like they're bringing the dim sum as it's ready. Well, definitely no carts. But I thought at the very least... The dumplings would come down a flight of stairs and then be on the table. But this is like they wait till everything's done, wrap it all up in box, put it on your oh, table. No. So you're in the cold eating these dumplings that have completely deteriorated into like gummy messes. Man, yeah. yeah. But they that did sucks. give you tea at the beginning so you could put your hands around the like quart plastic quart container of tea. So it's basically just a takeout scenario. It's a takeout scenario. Yeah. Which is not ideal for dim sum. It's fine for other things. I've done that a lot elsewhere, but I would not do dim sum that way again. In Toronto, there was a restaurant I went to called Odd Soul Korean place. And this was early when, um, dining when outdoor dining just first started. And I guess there was a restaurant a block away that had closed and they had some, worked out some deal where they were using their patio space. So you would order. It felt like a real restaurant, but you would order. And then you would see you know, 20 minutes later, a guy scurrying from the restaurant with a bag. And then they would bring it to a secondary stand and then like dole it out. And it was essentially <laughs> like they unpack it for you. <laughs> they take out, but they unpack it for you. <laughs> they and it. Because it was, yeah, exactly. It's like the, you ever order food and there's like that one person who's like, hold on, let's put it on some plates and do it nice. And you're like, no, don't, I just like, eat it now. But, you know, so it felt, it felt kind of like that, but it was early. So everyone I think was just excited to be, you know, out and about as we are. So the, there's another piece that came out this week. Uh, Pete Wells in the New York Times wrote uh, a listicle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nine ways outdoor dining will change New York. Um, Yeah. A couple of these, (laughs) a couple of these are silly. Um, A couple of these I wanted to bring up. Number three, there will be mariachis. Uh, Yeah, there's music, whether you like it or not. Number four, uh, there will be NIMBYs who are not in my backyarders. Um, And you're really starting to see this, you know? Um, And he said, already... Already, restaurants are fielding complaints from neighbors who apparently have no room in their hearts for music. Five is also about the NIMBYs. The NIMBYs will kvetch about more than just the music. Uh, make sure your liquor licenses. And, and and I think you are starting to see this. You're seeing a lot of like local Instagram accounts pop up with uh, restaurants doing things that are annoying them. Like, oh, the band is back playing past 8 p.m., which is the mm. time they agreed to stop. Right. You know, I mean, we've talked about this before. I understand, completely understand both sides of this. I've also been eating out and uh, having a conversation and one of the band passes it and it's like, maybe later, guys, you know? So, like, I get it. 
I get what they're doing. It's wonderful. It can be wonderful. It can be magical. I think net benefit though. Like huge you, net benefit. When I'm you just live saying I, in a city, you sign up for noise and all kinds of other stuff. And that is just the social contract. You know, like the restaurant outside my window, they're on the street. They have jazz every Thursday night. I appreciate it so much. But they added a drum kit this week. And so it took an extra hour for my kid to fall asleep because the drum kit is right outside her window. Is it and annoying? That's what you signed up for? Is that an, you signed up for yeah, that? Yeah, I did because I live in a very crowded city. So it was annoying that my kid was up an extra hour, but I have the joy of having a restaurant on my block that makes beautiful music and sells great food. You have a wonderful restaurant next to your apartment that you totally support, and you think they do interesting, uh, you know, inviting creative things with their space. That doesn't speak for all restaurants. Like you sign up for the fact that you appreciate this place. And although it kept your kid up an extra hour, like imagine if it was a shitty bar that had like a brass band. I, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there are varieties of this. But I will say also uh, my backyard is up against a bar's backyard. And every summer they have parties until like pretty late. And it's really loud and annoying. And you're just and sitting outside smiling, be like, I signed no, up. No, I was this. sitting in bed trying to fall asleep. And I'm like, fuck. Okay. Fuck. Yeah. But yeah. you know, I don't call for I'm on board with you. I, I think I think you sign up for it, especially when a city is trying to reinvent itself in, in the cloud. Well, especially of in this moment. Trying. It's like, give yeah. them a break. I, I have to say though, if they were keeping me up past like 2 a.m., there are ground rules. Like outdoor noise in New York City, you're supposed to wrap it up by like midnight. So if it's yeah. a one a.m. situation, I might call through on one. So I can't say I'm completely a saint here. I think you. I think that you have the correct saintly saintly attitude here. Thanks, Dan. I will say though, um, your neighborhood has some vibrance and is uh, certainly not a neighborhood that is asleep. But imagine uh, Upper East Side, very very quiet streets. Yeah. That are now outside and then have a band like it's it's going from zero to 100, which is uh, I can imagine quite jarring for some of the old residents of uh, upper of the Upper East Side there. Uh, here is one that I'm excited to talk to you about. The rents will be re- uh, recalculated. The restaurant rents will be recalculated. I was with a friend uh, last week and he was looking at uh, a theater space, uh-huh. actually. And when he was touring this theater space with the real estate agent, the according to him, the real estate agent um, didn't give a shit about the theater. Like was was just like, oh yeah, there's seats, whatever. And he goes, it's all about th- look how much frontal, uh, look how much sidewalk space the the like little outdoor bar has, mm, right? And mm-hmm. it had this massive kind of uh, ch- massive chunk of the the patio or the of the sidewalk. And he was like, this is what you're paying for. So I just think, uh, you know, Pete says in this piece that restaurants are just kind of scrambling or, or landlords are just scrambling to to get some rent as of right now. But once these leases come back up, um, especially rest like some restaurants are just gifted with monster sidewalk oh, yeah. space. Um, it's going to kind of reshuffle the quality of these different uh, rental properties. Yeah, yeah. It's a brand new amenity that did not exist when these leases were signed. Like you had this asset that was unusable before and is now a huge asset because we weren't... Which is fun. Yeah, that's it's a a really interesting 
uh, to consider that. I mean, I think that's the same with residential properties right now, no matter where you live, there is more of a premium placed on outdoor space, but with restaurants, it's wild because it's not like, Oh, my backyard is more attractive now than it was before. It's like this sidewalk was unusable before I could not get a permit to serve. I could not have this parking space to put diners in. And now I can. And yeah, the scent is across the country that this is going to continue. This isn't just for the pandemic. Like the, these are long lasting changes. To end, I just want to tell you about a new pastry debuting in the UK. It's called Yum Nuts. <laughs> you know, I saw this written out and I didn't realize why it was funny <laughs> until you said it out loud. <laughs> what is it? So it is a combo of a yum yum. <laughs> And a donut. Yeah. Uh, from, from our understanding, yum yums are kind of like a crueler croissant, flakier donut, uh, flaky twist. crawler. Yeah. Um, so, mixed with a donut, so a type of cronut-y thing sold by Marks and Spencer. They're calling it the Yum Nut, which is ridiculous, <laughs> and they're promoting a Santa's Santa Yum Nut right now. And it is making the round. Do you think, is there a chance that this wasn't done, like, that they didn't know they were being Let's see. S- sexually I love suggestive? I the, the headlines. M&S launches Santa's Yum Nut Christmas Donut, proving once and for all why you need gays on your marketing team. <laughs> so that headline doesn't believe that they knew what they were doing. I mean, you know what? To just <laughs> the caption li- on the photo. Don't forget to wipe your chin after chowing down on Santa's yum nut. <laughs> there you go. That's funny. I mean, that's why it's good to have gay gays in the media and not in the marketing team. Because then we get delightful um, things like this. Other headline: <laughs> Marks and Spencer customers mock new Santa's yum nut cronut. <laughs> in fairness, <laughs> wait, hold on. Fancy a nibble on Santa's yum nut? This new M and S treat is raising eyebrows. <laughs> in fairness if you take the mathematical equation that they use to create the name cronut which is the first part of the thing mixed with donut it's the yeah, same yeah but they could have just nut. you know <laughs> thought about it for a second yeah it's amazing how these light things can just really bring up the <laughs> I, i'm game for it i mean i want yeah one. i mean i think it's good timing for the launch of it too, because people are looking for a distraction. So like there's, I can't tell you how many headlines M&S leaves shoppers in hysterics after <laughs> launching Santa's yum nut. Also, you know what? I, I kind of am taking back that they weren't in on this at all because like, if you look at the, <laughs> the pastry top is like just his belt area. <laughs> it's you know the belly is i feel like uh right but you could easily just do santa's face like just the beard you could do his face you could do his face the fact that why are we get why is the body involved at all here (laughs) it's not even the santa's most descriptive part the face might have been might have been tough (laughs) it's just a mustache (laughs) (laughs) uh anyway on that note daniel um I'm happy for this week to be over and I'm excited to talk to you again next week. I hope, uh, I was trying to figure out a way to combine proposition and yum nut, but it was only getting more and more (laughs) graphic in my head and I couldn't. (laughs) Yeah. I hope your uh, weekend is also lovely and, uh, you know, get some, get some outdoor dining in and I hope you, uh, I hope you find, I hope I get a warm rock. Yeah. (laughs) Amanda, 
Find your warm rock, you know? Or at least a mug of hot water like you get. <laughs> Jesus Can Christ. I tell you that when I saw the warm stone thing, this is dark, but I mean, not super dark, but like you got to make sure you check that. St Imagine being like hot stone and then you just put it on someone's hands and they're like, ah! <laughs> That's what I thought too, because it said it came right out of the oven. Like that oven, could, yeah, that oven could be really hot. hot stone. It could be really hot. Uh, anyway, all, all right. right. See you all next week. Season's greetings. Bye.